Our Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your watch care over us. Thank you for the blessings of the past week. And Lord, as we now come to meditate on your word this evening, Lord, as we're coming to study, I pray that you would please guide us and speak to us with your word, that you lift us up heavenward, that our thoughts might be centered upon you. And please, Lord, guide us with your Holy Spirit. Speak to our hearts directly, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray and ask. Amen. Friends, well, the last time we studied together, we saw how God had prospered King David so much. He had blessed him abundantly. The last time we looked at how God exalted him and made his name great, but it was at these times. It's in these times where we have the greatest of prosperity, the greatest of success, when things are going smoothly and very well that we must be on our God. And so we begin in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 today. We read, And it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. We see here that there was a season as, as to when the kings would go to war, but the most notable thing that we see here in this verse is that David decided to tarry back at Jerusalem. What was it that caused him to stay back? Why did he not go with everyone to battle? Well, he was probably feeling pretty secure about himself and his kingdom. God had blessed him in his reign as king, and he had been giving him victory upon victory. The obvious hand of God was upon him, and so he felt pretty sure and secure about himself that he did not need to go out and fight with the rest of the soldiers. He just sent Joab and the rest of the army. And so he tarried back in Jerusalem, and already he was not in the place that God wanted him to be. He was being idle. He was not doing his duty as a king. And friends, idleness is the devil's workshop. We continue reading in Proverbs 21, verse 25 and 26. The Bible says this, The desire of the slothful killeth him, for his hands refuseth to labor. He coveteth greedily all the day long, but the righteous giveth and spareth not. Those that are idle, they fall into covetousness. They begin to desire things that don't belong to them, that they should not have or they have no right having at all. They, just, they say that a man who is busy throughout the day, a person who is busy in their work, no matter what it might be, they are tempted by one devil. But an idle man is tempted by a thousand devils. There is a thousand temptations awaiting those that are sitting around doing nothing. And David, he had placed himself in this situation. And what would happen next? Let's continue to read. Let's go back to 2 Samuel 11. And now verses 2 and 3. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a man washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? 
Notice here at the very beginning of the verse that in the evening, David decides to get off his bed. He's been slumbering throughout the day. A busy man has no time to sleep throughout the day. But here is David lying in bed and he's bored. He, he's gotten enough rest and so he decides to go to the top of his roof and he's walking around. He was so free and it was out to battle where he should have been and not walking around on his rooftop where this situation has gotten him into trouble. While he's walking around, what does he see from the top of his rooftop as he is standing there overlooking the rest of Jerusalem? He sees a woman washing herself. And instead of fleeing from sin, instead of fleeing from the things that he should not have been looking at, instead of shunning and shutting his eyes from sin, he's enamored by this beautiful woman. But the chance for him to run was still there. But instead, he decides to dig even more. He wants to know who is this woman. And he inquires about her and he asks for more information and he puts himself into a position to be tempted even more. And he discovers that this woman is a married woman and that man that she is married to is Uriah. That is his name. But who is Uriah? What do we know about Uriah? Why is he of such notable mention? Well, let's go over to 2 Samuel chapter 23 and we're reading two verses here, verse 8 and verse 39. These be the names of the mighty men whom David had, the Tekamite that sat in the seat, chief among the captains, and the same was Adino the Esnite. He lift up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. And they're going through all the mighty men of David. And we come to verse 39, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. David had 37 mighty men and Uriah the Hittite was one of them. Uriah was one of David's mighty men, one of the greatest warriors of all of David's army. They were the elite of the elite. That's who Uriah was, and that's who Bathsheba was married to. And so we read now in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're going back to the story, verse 4 and 5. And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. By and by, David gets Bathsheba to come over. She is by no means guiltless. She came over willingly as well. And they have, they sleep together and they have a baby. She gets pregnant. And um, what does David do to try to cover his sin? It wasn't just so simple. The situation is quickly spiraling out of control. He is spiraling out of control. And what does David do when he hears that Bathsheba is pregnant from the situation of her coming over to his place? Let's continue reading. 2 Samuel 11, verses 6 to 11. And David sent Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was now come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did, and how the people did, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house 
with all the servants of his Lord and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest not thou from thy journey? When, why then didst thou not go down unto thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. So David, he's desperate. He gets Uriah to be sent back from war and just to seem like he just wants to know what's going on. And so Uriah is just meant to be that messenger. And then he asks Uriah to go back home and see your wife. And he sends a whole banquet of food with him, but he doesn't go back. He's sleeping at the doorstep of the king's palace and he refuses to go back because he is a faithful soldier. He will not do that because even his captain, all the soldiers, they're all living in the open air. They're all living in tents. They're in war. They're uncomfortable. Uriah would do no such thing, even though his house was just a stone's throw away from the palace. And we all know what David is trying to do. He's trying to get him to go home, sleep with his wife, and oh, lo and behold, she's pregnant. And uh, it's, it must be because of Uriah. So David, he's desperate. This soldier is too faithful. What does he try to do next? Let's keep reading, shall we? 2 Samuel 11, verses 12 and 13 now. And David said to Uriah, tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day, and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he, even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. The next day, David, he resorts to even further measures. He gets him drunk, and he's hoping that in his drunken state, he would just go home, lie there, and the wife would be so happy they would sleep together. His sin would be covered up. But even that did not work. Even when he was drunk, he was still true to duty. He still went back and slept with the servants at the doorstep of the palace. He was faithful to his work. And so David, in his desperate attempts, nothing seemed to work. The faithfulness and loyalty of Uriah as a soldier did not even flag for a moment, even when he was in a drunken state. So finally, what does David decide to do? 2 Samuel 11, 14 to 15. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. What would David finally do? He would send a letter to Joab by the hand of Uriah, not knowing that Uriah in his hand, he was holding his own death sentence. Uriah would be placed in the hottest part of the battlefield where there were other mighty soldiers on the opposing side and Joab would pull the troops back and ultimately Uriah would perish in battle. And from one moment, David has gone from a great king, a man after God's own heart, to an adulterer, and then even to that next step, to a murderer. In his desperate attempt to cover up sin, he went to even greater lengths of transgression. 
and his record of a ruler as before this situation was such that few kings had ever equaled. Look at what the Bible says when David came to the throne. Look at what it says about him in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 15. And David reigned over all Israel, and David executed judgment and justice unto all his people. The Bible says that he was a faithful king. He was a just king. He executed judgment and justice. People could trust him that he would make those right decisions. People could have faith in him to, to be fair in all their dealings with all the situations that were brought before him. Judgment and justice characterized his reign. But how he had fallen from such a high and holy standard. And not only that, but he influenced those around him as well. Who? Joab. You see, David sent a letter to Joab saying, I want you to put Uriah in a place and you want you to pull away from him so that he will die. Joab, the leader of the armies, he was privy to David's instruction. And he did not know the reason as to why, but he followed the order of the king rather than being faithful to God. He placed David above his faithfulness to God, and also he ultimately became a transgressor of God's law as well. Why? Simply because the king commanded it. He was David's accomplice in this murderous scheme of Uriah, his mighty man. And you know, friends, while we ought to obey authorities, we need to be careful that we don't place these authorities above God's law. And that, that's the same with in our workplace as well. Whilst we have to work a job, whilst we have to go and study, we got to make sure that we never place any person above God. We got to obey them as far as possible as our conscience allows and as the Word of God allows. But look at what the Bible says in Romans 13, verses 1 to 2. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God, Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. You see, friends, where is the balance? It seems like if we resist the authorities, we're just damned, right? But no, only obey to such an extent as the laws of God allow and are in harmony with the laws of man. At the end of the day, God's law is the final authority. This is what we read in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. We ought to obey God first and not man. Let us not simply follow blindly the orders and the instructions and the demands and the laws of other people simply because they seem to be in a position of authority. Whether they're really in the government, whether they're our boss, whether they're our lecturer, whether they're our advisor, whatever it is. God always has the final say, and his laws are always to be followed first. But Joab, he put himself in that position where he put David first above God. He was part of this murderous scheme with Uriah. But now we come back to David, because really that is the focus. We'll look at Joab in another time, but now with Uriah dead, what does David do? He moves forward with his sin, thinking that nobody knows and no one would suspect anything. 2 Samuel 11, verse 26 and 27. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, 
David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Bathsheba would mourn for her husband, but when the days of mourning were over, David would bring her over to his palace and make her his wife. David thought that it was now safe, that no one would know, and the worst was now behind him. At least, that's what he thought. You know, friends, how David had changed in such a a quick moment of time. When running for his life from King Saul, and he had that opportunity to kill him, not once but two times, he refused to stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed. His conscience was so alive and so sensitive that even when he cut the robe of King Saul when he was in the cave there, his conscience smote him. But now, in order to cover up his sin of adultery, he was willing to murder one of his most faithful and one of his, his most valiant and trusted soldiers. But though he could hide from man, David could not hide from God. God saw everything that had taken place, and he was displeased with David, and he was not about to leave this grievous sin unpunished. And so let's continue reading. 2 Samuel 12, verses 1-4. to And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him, and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing, save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought up and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter." And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. Nathan now gives him a parable. He comes to give David a parable, and for us we all know that it's about David's sin. But David himself does not know this. And at the end, how does David react to this parable. Well, let's continue. Verse 5 and 6. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that has done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. You know, without realizing it, David pronounces judgment upon himself. The reason why Nathan would come with a parable instead of just confronting David straight on is because he and God, I guess, wanted to give David the opportunity to think from a standpoint of someone else and what this man would do and what was a just requirement of paying back. And what was that? He said, fourfold. You see, after all of this this parable has been finished, Nathan now turns to the king, and he fixes his eyes on the king and gives the meaning of this parable. Verse 7 to 12, And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house, and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? 
Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives from before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Nathan gives this clear condemnation, this clear judgment from God of which David pronounce upon himself. You see, how did David react? He was in the position of king. He could have fought against Nathan. He could have sentenced him to death for being so rude and pronouncing such a judgment on the king. But how did David react? Let's continue reading verse 13. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. You know, David, he cried out and he exclaimed that he had sinned against the Lord. Every sin, friends, that we commit is against God directly. It's against the God of heaven. It always comes back to God. Yes, David had committed a grievous sin against Uriah and against Bathsheba. However, the greatest sin was against God. Even Joseph, when he was in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife was trying to reach out to him, get him to lie with her, he exclaimed, how can I do this great sin? Not against Potiphar, but against God. You see, friends, God was the one that had put David in this position of honor, put David in this position of king and of authority as he had done with Joseph as well. And it was God that had exalted David above all the other kings. It was God that had given him all these victories and put fear on the surrounding nations that there would be peace all around. God had blessed David abundantly in riches and in honor, but now David took all these blessings, his position, to commit such a horrible sin. And so he cried out and he recognized that he had sinned against God. You know, when we look at the judgment and how David gave in that parable, David really was worthy of death. However, Nathan gave him the assurance that he would not die, that God had put away his sin. However, the consequences of the sin would not be removed. His death, yes, it was, but justice still had to be maintained. So although he had given the assurance, you would not die, what else did Nathan say? 2 Samuel 12, 14 and 15. Howbeit because of this deed, thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And Nathan departed unto his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. Here was the first consequence of David's sin the child of David and Bathsheba would suffer the consequence and would die. David said that the guilty party should suffer fourfold, and this was the first. You see, David put Uriah to death. He murdered him, and so the fourfold, this was the first of four to come. 
David would do all that he could to, to avert this, the, the, the death of this child. He would try to appeal to the, the mercy of God. Who knows if God would change his mind or not? So David tried. He tried and did all that he could. Look at what we read in verse 16 and 17. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted, went in, and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not. Neither did he eat bread with them. David was trying. He was trying to save the life of this child. He deserved the death, not this child. But yet God's justice had to be maintained. Seven days later, that child would die. You know, we must ask ourselves this question, friends. Why did someone else have to suffer for David's sin? It was a pronouncement that he made upon himself as well, right? But you know, if he died for his own sin, it would have been less painful than what he would go through to pay back fourfold. His suffering that was more because of the death of the child, and that was the justice that was served. You know, as a parent, we, we don't like to see our children suffer. We would rather take that suffering, that sickness, and whatever they're going through. But David, yes, because of his sin, it affected others. You see, friends, we got to realize, we got to come to this understanding that we don't live for ourselves. The, the decisions that we make are, are, are not just affecting our own selves, especially as parents, especially as those in position of authority. We are able to affect others as well. But you know, friends, David's repentance was sincere. It was deep. He didn't make any excuse. He didn't try to avoid the penalty. He saw the enormity of what he had done, and he loathed his sin. Psalms 51 is a, 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 a psalm of his repentance, and we read there in verses 1 to 4, he cries out, Have mercy upon me, O God according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done evil in this sight, that thou mayest, mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. You know, when we look at David after he sinned, it's not that David didn't sin at all, but all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But when we compare the sins of Saul to the sins of David, really, Saul seemed much worse. I mean, pardon me, David seemed much worse. What did Saul do? He, he just didn't, he didn't execute God's uh, command in killing and wiping out the whole race of the Malachites. But David was a murderer. But what was the difference? You see, David, he was willing to accept reproof. He didn't make any excuses. He bore the consequences of his sin without grumbling, without justifying himself, without making any excuse whatsoever. He had a full repentance. He saw his sin in its real light. He saw that it really was sin. He saw his wickedness and he made no excuse. However, not so with Saul. When Samuel came to him, the prophet, and he came directly to him and asked him what he had done, he did not even want to um, admit his mistake and his fault and his sin. Saul, he despised reproof from the prophet Samuel and from God. And instead of softening his heart, 
Instead of, of willing to listen, he hardened his heart against rebuke and even from the justice of God. Friends, how do we react when we're confronted with what we have done wrong? Do we get defensive? Do we get angry that people point out our sins? Or do we humble ourselves because we have a realization of what we've actually done wrong? Do we actually show mercy and ask for mercy? Do we actually show that we're sorry for what we have done? Or are we like Saul and we're making excuses? You know, friends, why is it important to show that we are actually sorry? At least in the position of David, he had great influence. Through him, when he brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, when he did all these things, it elevated the spirituality of the whole nation. But it would also be through him that if sin went unpunished, if he was unrepentant, people would be led to believe that God blesses in spite of what we do. No matter who we are, God will bless us. And it would affect the whole spirituality of the nation. It would look as if God is playing favorites. It's as if, oh, the, the, the Israelite nation chose Saul and it wasn't God that chose Saul, so God is not going to be with Saul at all. But oh, God chose David, so yes, I'm going to be with David no matter what he does. No, friends, sin had to be punished. Sin had to go and be punished no matter who it was. But the difference was David made no excuses for his sin. When Nathan the prophet came, he fell on his knees and said, please be merciful to me. Cleanse me from this sin. Please forgive me. He made a thorough work of repentance. It was obvious to everybody around that David was sorry for what he had done. His repentance was deep and genuine that he was really sorry for his sin. You see, people were watching. They were seeing how their king would react. And the message would come across clear that God is not a respecter of persons. Those who sin will suffer the consequences of their wrongdoing. But if they turn with all their heart back to God, he will abundantly pardon. He may not always remove the consequences of the sin, and in this case, it was the child dying. But yes, he was merciful to not allow David to die. You see, friends, we see here in Isaiah 55 and verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto God and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Friends, if we've sinned, whether big or small, let's return back to God. Let's not make excuses for our sins. Let's own up to our actions and not blame somebody else. Let's not blame our spouse. Let's not blame our friend. Let's not blame our parents. Let's not blame our boss or the situation that we're in. Let's not blame anything but take full responsibility for our own actions. And if we do that, we're halfway to, to, repentance, or, or, to repentance already because we are willing to own up to the actions and the mistakes and the sins that we have made. And when we come back to God, friends, He's ready to bind up the wounds that we have inflicted upon ourselves. Only may God grant us a heart that is the same as David, to have true repentance, to recognize our faults, and to make no excuses for the things that we have done. So friends, 
Let's not be proud. Let's not steal up our hearts and harden our hearts against God's repentance and his rebuke against us. But he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. That's what God desires for us today. We've all sinned. None of us have lived a perfect life, not even this man after God's own heart, King David. But when we sin, let's make sure we come back to God. Let's do that today, shall we, as we pray. Oh, Father in heaven, Lord, if any of us have committed sins even of the past week, Lord, help us not to make excuses. Help us not to continue down this path and think that it'll be okay, but Father, please forgive us and give us a truly repentant heart. Help us, Lord, to truly be surrendered to you. May you please guide us and lead us, O Lord. Help us, Father, to not make any excuses, but that you would just simply come in and cleanse our soul temple. And so, Father, please help us. We cannot help ourselves. Lift us up from this mire of sin, and this pit of sin that we've got ourselves into, and set our feet upon the solid rock, Jesus Christ. We surrender our lives again to you today. Lead us, guide us, strengthen us, O Lord, and make us men and women after your own heart again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, friends, thank you for joining us again today. May God bless you. And may we be found walking closer with God in this new week that we would make no excuses for our sins, but that when we sin, let us quickly run back to our God and our Savior. May God be with you and God bless you.